You're rapping about homosexuals and Vicodin. I can't sell this shit. I'll buy a ticket for you if you shut the fuck up and leave this red-headed dork alone. The flag, uh, that didn't fly till 1864 in the battles anyway. It was never in the Battle of Gettysburg. I'm there to watch guys beat the hell out of each other for 200 laps and then, you know, come to the finish line and, you know, there's nothing left. Janet, you ignorant slut. Fell onto the doorknob and it punched me in the eye. What are your guys' policies of George Washington cake? I think there's like an armed nunnery, you know, with like with like a medieval cannon out front or something. It's called the Battle of the Willoughby's. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You're just a ripper. Oh my gosh. You're only as great as your next achievement. So of course, I say no, mine, come on in, the more the merrier. Oh my gosh. So we're we are here, we are live, we are in the house with longtime legend Bob. It's so good to see you. It, it, it feels like it's been so long since we did a show together, Bob. I think it's been a while. It's been a long time. You uh, lots of lots of lots of ha- has happened since we've last spoken. You uh, you're in new digs right now. Yes. Yeah. New house. Uh, basically the same area, but new place. And uh, yeah, settling in and uh, you know, good to see the country uh, in a little bit better shape, perhaps. You know, well, not maybe necessarily in better shape, but on a better track. We'll see. You know, not espousing any liberal agenda here, as you know, I am a conservative, but uh, it is sure. good to see. Good to see everything is uh, moving along here. You know, we're good. Absolutely, a lot's happened. I know since the last time we we've we've did a show, but I agree with you. It's it may not be in better shape, but we're definitely on a better track. And I feel people on both the right and the left have kind of sighed a collective relief in the sense that like we're we're moving forward at least. Yeah. From the yeah, we are. Yeah, I think so, and I think. Uh, there's a lot to take from it, even if you uh, and I know there's a lot of people. There's 74 million voters out there who voted for Donald Trump, who wanted this to go in a different direction. But I think uh, ultimately our national security is going to be protected much better. Um, and, you know, elections have consequences and the same will be true in two years when the midterm elections occur, you know, to be a bit of a rebuke on the other side from what Biden's doing. And that's uh, that should be well handled. And, you know, let's get back to, uh, especially on the Republican side, let's get back to conservatism and politics and not just uh, a kind of a dangerous obsession with one man. And, you know, let's get back to a party that wants to make America, uh, you know, put forward in their ideals and their beliefs and, you know, the Democrats the same way on the other side. And, you know, maybe we can come to uh, some agreements on certain things and move it forward. Well said, my friend. Absolutely. And and a lot of conservatives uh, and, you know, people that voted for Trump, they want to get back in that that path, too, of sure. conservatism and, and really the breadth and the heart of what the Republican Party is. Seventy four million people voted for Donald Trump. Those 74 million people didn't charge the, the Capitol. I mean, you yeah. need to remember that a lot of those people just want to get back in line with what their beliefs are and their core beliefs of their party. Yeah. So I feel like this is a good chance for. Republicans to get back to, you know, and I was a registered Republican for a really long time. And I, what really just turned me off was basically Tea Party stuff. That was it. It was, I'm still in line with 
saving money. I'm in line with defense. I'm in line with securing the borders. You know, but it, it was more of the like the radical Republicans that kind of took center stage. Yeah. That I feel like a lot of people are getting kind of tired of. Yeah, it, it and it's a shame too that then you know they they want to censure some of these Republicans that came out and voted against. Uh, you know, voted for Trump's impeachment kind of against like the party line. And, you know, while I understand the politics involved and Trump is, you know, motivating that base is an excellent way at winning a primary election within the Republican Party. But it's an awful way to run general election, as we've seen. You know, that's why Trump lost. And Trump, quite honestly, tanked the two candidates here in Georgia uh, uh, with David Perdue and uh, Kelly Leffler as well. So you can see where that that sort of political uh, ideology goes awry in a general election where you have independents and, you know, on the fence Democrats where everybody can vote, you know, they just want something different than other than Donald Trump. And we've been kind of freed from that. And hopefully the Republican Party can unchain themselves from that man and, and go forward as a strong party, because we do need two strong parties to move forward in our politics uh, for compromise and to move things forward in a proper way. And, you know, hopefully that happens. We'll see. Definitely. Absolutely. They need, they need, they absolutely need two strong parties. And I feel like the Republican party is on the right track to, to going that way because sure. every day Donald Trump gets less and less relevant, especially now with the impeachment trial and everything's over. He's just becoming less and less relevant every day. And he's not even saying, saying anything. It's, it's, it's kind of, he's kind of just quietly going into the night. So I feel, I mean, we'll see what happens, but I feel like, yeah, it's on the, the right track to achieve that. Absolutely. I just yeah. want Bob. I won't say her last name. I want Bob on a ticket soon. I hope for a for governor of Georgia or something because you could do it, my friend. I don't think I'd win. I think you would. We have uh, something big happened yesterday. The Daytona 500 for for idiots like myself. What I know what the Do Daytona 500 is, but for idiots similar to me, what is the Daytona 500? Well, you have, uh, you know, you have the Super Bowl for the NFL, which is the culmination of obviously of the two best teams from each series, uh, each conference playing in a championship, a world championship game. Um, and you have the World Series. Uh, you have, you know, with golf, you have these major tournaments. NASCAR does it a bit differently where you have your biggest race of the season as the very first race of the season, which is the Daytona 500. And there's you know, little exhibition races leading up to that. But ultimately, it comes down to that Sunday race, uh, usually in mid-February, where the Daytona 500 takes place. And, you know, they had a great race yesterday that went into this morning, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, you had uh, there's stuff going on with the cars and, and new changes in the ways that they have to handle themselves on these super speedways and drafting and and teammates and things like that. And you saw that all come into play last night. And you saw really what is, uh, you know, not uh, a person who I would have loved to have seen the Vegas bets on Michael McDowell winning the Daytona 500 because uh, that had to be pretty big payout. But uh, he's yeah. a very well-liked staple in the garage and a really good guy, just a really homespun kind of just good old fashioned guy and a good dude. And uh, it's good to see him win. And there was a pretty spectacular crash at the end of that to, uh, you know, uh, have that win and usually see that at Daytona and it's good to see the drivers walk away. And a lot of that has to do with Dale Earnhardt, you know, dying, you know, it's been 20 years now. I can't believe it's been 20 years since he, wow. Uh, it's I, already been 20 years. Yeah. I remember the week that happened and it was like, Oh my gosh, you know, it was cause it was obviously big news. And, yeah. um, I remember I, I was working that day and it was just like, 
you know, everyone was upset, and there were people that, myself included, that didn't really even watch NASCAR that were stunned by that. And you know, he was such a big deal. I can't believe that was twenty years. Yeah, and and ESPN did a really good job of uh, they did like an E sixty thing uh, yesterday before the race. Uh, you know, ESPN used to be a very big part of NASCAR. They don't cover the races anymore, but they still, you know, put out pretty good material on that. No matter, you know, their political stance, you know, it's kind of, you know, they, they've gotten a little bit political and, you know, people kind of want sports, but they still do very good yeah. things, uh, in, in what they do. And they did a really good piece on Dale Earnhardt and the safety in NASCAR and how you had, I think it was nine drivers die, uh, in the year leading up to Dale Earnhardt's death. And it basically took the death of a superstar in NASCAR to really change the safety culture in that sport and to uh, uh, make sure that these guys uh, are safe when they get in these accidents. And last night was a showcase of that. Uh, Last year when Ryan Newman had his horrible accident at Daytona, uh, he went survived with uh, the technology they had back in those cars 20 years ago. Um, and NASCAR has really come to the forefront in that, and they've done a very good job of keeping the drivers safe and making the racing still entertaining for the fans. Because, well, you want to see like the great racing, and yeah, you know, NASCAR fans, we don't want to see the big crash, but we we like the big crash in terms of how it plays into the story, in terms of how the race goes, and that whole narrative. And you always like to see the drivers walk away from that, and that's good to see. And everybody did that last night, so that makes sense too. That as a fan, you know, as as part of the culture, the crashes are a big part of that, a part of the, the, the spectatorship of the sport. Obviously you don't want them to happen. You don't want anybody to get hurt. You don't want anybody to die. Certainly, but it is part of the, the history of the sport or crashes in the race. And doesn't it happen like every year at Daytona 500? Yeah, they've, they usually, because of the style of racing there where you have to push the guy in front of you, it's drafting. Anybody yeah. who wants watches the movie Days of Thunder, understands the drafting aspect where the front car pushes a big hole in the air. You can drive up behind them, and that counts for, you know, 10, 15, 20 cars behind them. And then they pull out and try to pass, but also the leader then, uh, especially on the last lap, has to then block. And the blocking is where the crashing comes in, and and it puts the drivers in a very bad situation where you essentially, you can either hold your line and let the guy pass on the inside or the outside, or you have to block. And these drivers are going to block, especially it's to win the Daytona 500. You're going to block. So they block on these races at Daytona and Talladega runs the same package. Uh, and, oh. and, and you're going to have those incidents. And luckily, you know, everybody walked away. Okay. But you know, it produces some pretty spectacular crashes and some really pissed off drivers. And a lot of the drivers don't like the, they, they don't like it. And I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes doing that. It's great to watch as a fan. It's exciting, but it's, uh, it's it's pretty miserable as a driver. I would think so. Yeah, that's got to be really intense to do that. Yeah. Because, like you said, the primary objective is to win. You're not you're yeah. not getting into a stock car there and saying, "I'm you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna play it safe. Yeah. I'm gonna like take this. I'm gonna take the easy road. There's no such thing. You got to go balls to the wall, yeah. nuts to butts. That's not the right example. But um, is Michael McDowell? You said he's like a nice guy. Is because I love to hear that. When you have like a quarterback or somebody that wins, you know, an all-star or MVP or whoever, that's like a good guy, like a down-to-earth, like good guy that like says the right things that you want to, you're like rooting for him. You're like, he deserves this, you know, not like some dick. Is he, uh, so he's like a good all-around dude, you yes. think? Yes. And, and what you can tell, you know, the, the, I guess like the litmus test on that is he's very well liked among the other drivers as well. 
So, you know, it's not to say that like you have to be well liked to be a good driver and you have to be this and that because, you know, like a guy like Dale Earnhardt was one of the greatest drivers that ever lived in NASCAR, but he wasn't very well liked in the garage uh, at the time when he was racing. And quite honestly, if you're going to be competitive and ruffle some feathers, you're not going to be very well liked. But Michael McDowell, kind of his car, for the most part, in a lot of these races to say, you know, to be honest, is kind of a backmarker. And, you know, he he's, he, he's, runs, he drives the Ford, right? He drives a Ford number 34 Loves Ford, uh, sponsored by Loves. It's that truck stop uh, on the side of the highways where you can get all kinds of stuff, take a pee in a clean bathroom and <laughs> showers in there and everything, you know? Because there are certain sideway, uh, sideway, there are certain, you know, side of the road spots with the word love in it for truck drivers that That's aren't different. as clean. Yes, yes. I believe that would be uh, more on the dark web uh, than, yes. uh, you know. Than on the logo of a uh, a NASCAR stock car, but yeah, they're usually like Cafe Risque or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. It's not like that. This it's a well known uh, truck stop kind of area, and you know, for anybody, you know, on the highway, especially in the South, I think it's more prevalent in the southeastern United States here. But he's a good guy. He's he's been there for eleven years, and for a guy that hasn't had the successes of you know some of the other bigger drivers, it, it's kind of. It, it says a lot about the character of him and and the way he drives the car that owners still want to put him in a car, you know, with his lack of racing success, so to speak. So like he's going to bring you the car home and he's going to do a good job and, and get the best out that you can and also bring it home in one piece. So that's what you like to hear. And he so like you mentioned, because he hasn't had success in this like stratosphere before the odds on him. It was probably a pretty sweet payout. I, yeah, I would love to. Like I listened to, and I'm going to give him a little plug here, the Door Bumper Clear podcast, which is a bunch of NASCAR spotters who do a great job. And they're nice. not podcasters. They're just guys who talk on the radio to these guys. But they have excellent insight on the insides of NASCAR. You know, Brett Griffin, TJ Majors, and those nice. guys. And they're fantastic with that. And they, they do a good job of bringing that home. And I follow those guys on Twitter, and they were all, you know, applauding the victory and – uh, you know, it's, it's good to see a good guy like that win or race it like Daytona, but you know what? He's probably not going to run up in the front at, at the intermediate tracks where like downforce becomes an issue. And, you know, he's going to run, you know, that, that car usually runs the car he drives is, you know, probably 20th to 30th, you know, that's where he's going to finish. And that's where he should finish because that's the equipment they have. So how, how many cars, how, how many drivers compete in the Daytona 500? We have 40 start the race. I think they had 44 attempt the race this year. So four guys have to go home, uh, guys or girls. But I think it was all uh, men uh, this year. Um, and there's no points for second place. Like Chase Elliott came in two points behind. You still get points. Yeah, you still get points. And how they run the Daytona 500 is you have qualifying uh, that they run. And then that sets basically all qualifying does is set the front row for the Daytona 500. And then you have what are called the twin 125s which are qualifying races the very next day on Thursday, this past oh. Thursday, which then set the rest of the field. And, and it gives an opportunity for the cars who may not run very well on their own to draft and race their way into the Daytona 500. So it's, oh, it's okay. Interesting. So that's it's how it Yeah. It's a unique race in that aspect. And unfortunately, you know, one of the cars who, uh, William Byron, who took the outside pole, he was, he was sitting second, uh, wrecked his car in one of those qualifying races and had to start in the back. So you you oh. run a risk there. If you have a really good car, you have to still have to run this race. But, you know, how hard do I go? Do I just pull out and, you know, 
run the rest of the guys, but it's also a great opportunity to test the car in the draft to where you can figure out where the car works and where it doesn't for the actual race. So, Oh, okay. That's, that's a really interesting system. Would you say William Byron? Yeah. He's the Chevrolet number 24. Yeah. He's really young. He actually got his start, uh, running simulation races, uh, on the computer and Dale Earnhardt Jr. Found him and was like, this guy's pretty good. Maybe Mr. Hendrick, Hendrick, who owns a bunch of the, uh, cars in NASCAR, one of the most prolific NASCAR teams, uh, said, all right, let's sign him up and let's put him through. And he made his way all the way up to the top. I mean, so it shows you. Oh, you know, wow. That's where uh, he from. He had never had his ass in the seat of a race car really until he had some major success in the virtual racing kind of arena there. Oh, that's interesting. How, how did you think this was all? First of all, Richard Petty of all time has the most wins in the Daytona 500. Is that correct, Bob? Yeah, I think he has seven. Seven Daytona 500 wins. That's what it says, yeah. And yeah, the most wins seven by... Seven championships. Um, yeah. And he won in an era... He didn't win much after the mid-'80s, uh, but he won in an era where Petty Enterprises was dominating the field, and they had their little shop in Level Cross, North Carolina, like in the backyard. This is when NASCAR was still a pretty small time. In the backyard of his, oh. uh, his parents' house, you know, that's where, and that's where the really? shop is still today. So wait, so in the eighties, NASCAR was nowhere near the monster that it is right now. No, no. Cause now it's a mainstream sport. It is. It I is. Mean, it is. It's huge. It's, it, isn't it like the most watched sport? I think it used to be, I think the NFL still overtakes it, but I think in terms of spectators, uh, it out, it outdoes the MLB. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure what that is like now, you know, after the last few years, they hit a bit of a downturn after 2008 with the economy going bad. I yeah. think some people turned it off and NASCAR kind of made a bad decision to race a lot of races, unfortunately, Clark out West. Uh, and they kind of pulled up some of the stakes from their grassroots in the Southern United States and took that away from some of their fans there and tried to invigorate the fan base out West. And that never really panned out. And they kind of now have pushed themselves back to the fan base, you know, the Southern fan base. In oh, okay. Is that why you never hear about races out West? Probably. Yeah. I mean, you still have a few there like Fontana, you know, they, they have the Fontana race there in, in California and they've actually, they're actually knocking down that one and a half mile track now and making it a short track similar to Martinsville, which is a half mile track where you basically oh. have to beat the hell out of the guy's bumper in front of you to pass them. You know, you got to move them out of the way, which is what race fans want to see. Yeah, that's tight. Yeah. We don't want to see like a car get behind somebody and you get within three feet, you get an arrow push and you can't pass the guy. We want to see them locking bumpers and hitting each other. Yeah, that's hardcore. It gives me the willies, man. Seeing how close that is, that's ruthless. So, that gets the, the palms all sweaty. Yeah. And you still have, you know, uh, fine, uh, not, it's, it's not Sears Point. It's Infineon Raceway out there uh, in wine country. It's a road course. And that's an excellent race. Uh, they do an excellent race there in Sonoma, Sonoma Valley. Oh, they have a track there. Yeah. They have so, a speedway. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a good track. It's a road course. So it's very different. And it's that road course was not designed for stock cars. It's, you know, for these open wheel cars that can get through there and be very quick. And stock cars are big, fat and lazy and they have big fat asses and they get through there. And it's, it's fun to watch the drivers have to navigate that because those cars are not designed for that. And a lot of these drivers didn't really train for this. You know, they didn't. Oh, so it's kind of bulky in the back. Thanks for a good race. 
And this year, NASCAR is doing a lot to change that too. So they're, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to re redesign some of the cars? Well, I think COVID actually gave them a great opportunity to do that. It gave them almost the excuse to do this, you know, with how they run like a, a different race schedule where NASCAR used to have a whole weekend where you get there on Friday, there's qualifying and practice on Friday, yeah. Saturday, more practice, you run the provisional races from the lower series. And then Sunday, you have the big race. Well, now, basically, they're bringing NASCAR to these tracks, and they're having them show up and just no practice or maybe one practice session, and you guys race. No which shit. It much more exciting because these guys can't shake their cars down. They don't know what they're dealing with, and it makes it much more actually entertaining. Yeah, what do you do? Yeah, that's that's crazy. You've, you've been in a, in a stock car before. You've ra- you've does, does that get the adrenaline going? Because that's got to be a mindful man. It's very humbling to sit in there. And like, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to sit there and hit that switch and feel that engine rev up. And it shakes. It not only shakes the car, but it shakes your insides. And then you drop it into first and let out the clutch and let that thing go. And holy shit, you, you, you know you're going somewhere. That's but, amazing. Because your family has a history to NASCAR historically. A little bit. My grandfather did some dirt racing, owned a few dirt cars, and local Pennsylvania stuff. Nothing big. No, that's that's uh, pretty amazing. That's pretty yeah, cool. Grand, Grandview Speedway. That's where I kind of grew up on it. So oh, that's where. What is it? Grandview Speedway, and it's Bechtelsville, Pennsylvania. Grand- oh, is that how you say Bechtelsville? I don't know. I, I no, I think it is. I've seen that on paper before, and I was like, where is that? Bechtels or Bechtels? I don't know, but I've always said it Bechtelsville, and nobody's ever corrected me. I think it's Bechtelsville. Is that near the Poconos? Uh, you're getting up that way. It's, it's probably about 25 minutes from Allentown. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. Cause I've seen that on paper before. Yeah. Uh, but you, you've, you've been in the cars before you've, you know, been up yeah, in front. I've been in, I've been in a stock car and I've been in a dirt car and you know, two different beasts. So, and they're actually racing. They usually run the Bristol race on concrete at a half mile track in Bristol. And now they put dirt on the track and they're going to run that in March on dirt, which a lot of these guys aren't. Oh, that's cool. Races which is going to be fun to watch Friday, February 12th at the Daytona, uh, speedway. There was the, uh, next era energy Two Fifty. It's yes, the, that, it, that's the truck series. Oh, the truck series. Yeah. How big of a deal is that? Cause we've talked about the truck series before. And I remember like I watched some videos and I, and I thought it was really cool. I thought they were just, it looked cool. Um, yeah, they, they said, are, they, was, are they as big as NASCAR with these fans? They, uh, you know, it's like a, it's like your double a baseball in terms of, uh, the equipment. So, you know, you, and the trucks run on the same chassis that a stock car essentially would run on like a, your, your typical stock car that you would see on Sunday, a NASCAR, you know, it's not a NASCAR, it's a stock car. And people get farmed up. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. If they do really well in the truck series, can they get, do they like, is there, do they aspire to go to nascar is that not how that works is that a whole different beast no yeah it's it's a feeding ground it's a it's it's a it's a path into the big legs where you go from the truck series and a lot of the drivers because the truck series is a lot cheaper to run than like the big series so the truck series like clark if you and i and maybe hassinger maybe another person like put our money together we could probably buy a truck team it's not that really yeah why are we doing that we wouldn't be able to run a whole season. We would have no idea what the hell we're doing, but we could we could essentially fund it. It's it's much more lower funded than the other series, like much lower. 
because they're taking the chat, the old chassis from a lot of these cup teams that literally they would throw away and they're just buying them from them for pennies on the dollar. And they can run these trucks for, you know, probably like maybe a million for a year, you know, and if you put a bunch of people, you can do that. So it is, yeah. A lot of these drivers kind of dabble in that. They they run these feeder series that where they can pull some of these talents out and then run them in the Xfinity series, which the truck series is like double A baseball. The Xfinity series is like triple A. And then the cup series is like major league. Oh, that's so cool. So, yeah. If you if we put together like $500,000, let's say there was like a group of investors and we were like, we want Bob to be the driver. You, are you able to do that if we put up the money? Like, is that how that works? Or do you need to go through some kind of like certification? Well, that would get us started. Yeah. But uh, you wouldn't want me as a driver. For that kind of money, we could probably find somebody better and younger that would be marketable. And then we could get a sponsor. For Nobody's more money than that, I would still want Bob as the driver. Uh, well, that's very kind of you. But, you know, we could probably find somebody much better. And, you know. Because that would be a trip, I think. That would be crazy and very exciting. Yeah. To have yeah. a winning team in that has a, you know, some stock in NASCAR and the truck series, and be like, yeah, we own a team, and they're doing really well. Because doesn't you like race, we probably wouldn't do very well. <laughs> you wouldn't do well. Why? Because of well, the mechanics. We would need that five hundred thousand would just go to okay. Let's get us the equipment and all that stuff. Okay, that's figured out. All right, now we need a sponsor to get some talent. You know, not just talent in the seat, but talent in the garage. You know, somebody who can set up the car. And, and, you know, the truck and then do all the other things. We need a pit crew. That's going to cost money because you got to fly them down to the races. You got to fly them everywhere. And NASCAR has like a couple charter planes that they use, but you have to pay them for that. So it, it adds up. I love how much you yeah. know about this stuff, though. It's so cool. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's brutal. It, it adds up to you quickly. Like, it seems like a very, it's not a very good investment at all. It's not an investment at all. No, it's, it's not. not. It's, uh, it's not. a losing. It's like buying yeah. an RV. It depreciates right away. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, like I love how much you know about this stuff. <laughs> it's what? It's like driving a new car off the lot. It like loses like five thousand dollars as soon as you pull it out after you signed all the papers. You know? Yeah, yeah, it just goes away. You're an expert on this stuff, though. I, I think it's so cool. With uh, when you talk about the truck series, when you when you talk about these the technicians, the mechanics that are in the pit crew. Yeah. I mean, these guys are really good. They're probably like the best you'll ever get, right? As far as automotive technicians. Yeah, well, it varies from team to team. Like, you'll have some of these teams, maybe not so much in the truck series, but in NASCAR, you've seen, you know, okay, so let's go back like 30 years ago in NASCAR in like 1995, 1991. Let's go back 30 years, straight back. A lot of these guys were, you know, family oriented, not family oriented in terms of like the social angle, but family oriented in terms of like they've been brought up in the sports, so they have that insider knowledge. Um, you know, probably you right. know, graduated high school and things like that. But now you have guys in the sport who have master's degrees in engineering and things like that. And you have, you know, your crew chief, your spotter, but your crew chief is probably, you know, you have a car chief then under the crew chief and you have engineers below that, you know, to set up the car. And a lot of the car setup has changed from 30 years ago where you tell the driver to get on the track, how the car feels. All right, we'll take some, we'll jack some wedge out of it there. We'll lower some tire pressures, you know, we'll, adjust the airflow through the engine, things like that to make it run a little bit better. Nowadays, you can do a lot of that on the computer, put the driver in the car, and you can simulate thousands of races, you know, without having the driver run one practice lap. So what's the fun in that, though? Exactly. It still does come down to the driver and how he feels his ass in the seat, you know, how he car move. 
And there's still a lot that goes on there, but you, you water that down to from the Xfinity series, which is the AAA, and then you water that down even more to the truck series. And it's probably more the truck series is probably more like NASCAR was 30 years ago, where it's more, the driver runs 30 or 40 laps and tells you, all right, the car, the, the truck fell off here and there, you know, as we burned off some fuel, the back end, you know, got ass happy. And, you know, we need to get jack some wedge into the left rear, you know, move the track bar down a little bit. And, you know, I can adjust in the car, but there's only so much I can do there. You need to, you know, prop up that left rear or whatever, you know, all that crap. So there's probably a lot less science going on in the truck series, whereas you get to the cup series, then it's much more where you have 40, $50 million teams. So that it's a huge chasm between the two. Where when you're so, down in like some of the lower series or whatnot, it really depends on the driver and like, yeah, like a lot of these guys don't even really have a pit crew. They have to hire one for the weekend on the oh, truck. Really? In the truck they, series. They just bring their like family through and like, all right, you're gonna pit the car. <laughs> yeah, you ain't Uncle, gonna win. Uncle, you ain't gonna win doing that. Uncle Jim has worked at, in, on BMWs for 30 years, so he's gonna be coming down kind of running. He can nail some lug nuts in during the pit stop. <laughs> 90 90 pound tire around is is getting into nascar whether it's the truck series or or nascar itself is a kind of a private club in the sense that you got to kind of know somebody to get in there like if you if you were just joe blow that was excellent at racing and excellent at driving but you didn't have any connections and you just wanted to get in there is it like as tough as the majors you need to be like playing for a college like how does that all work Yes and no. And NASCAR rewards like hard work. So like if you're like a lot of these guys, some of like the greatest crew chiefs that you hear about talk about themselves and their career path, they may have been from the Northeast or the Midwest or the West. They weren't the Southern guys who were like part of the Allison family or the Earnhardts or, you know, the Elliots who was a family operation. But some of these guys came down and like showed up at a shop one day, slept in their car and said, hey, I'll just sweep your floor if you let me in, you know, and I'll do that. And wow. they'll do it for a little while. They'll pay a minimum wage and then they work their way up. So it's really based on hard work and it's really by the by the bootstraps. They're I believe in that. I, I love that where you can start off as an entry position and work your way up. It's a rags to riches kind of hard work pays off and it works kind of mentality, which is great. Like I started off in the mailroom and now I'm – on the top floor running the company. That's where a lot of it comes through. And like, it's not just a good old boy network that you're not allowed into. It's not a good old boy fraternity. If you go there and work, they let you in. So, and I went to school with a lot of, uh, North Carolina. I went to school with a lot of people whose family members were tied into it and which gave me a lot of access just because of them, not because of anything I did, but just gave me a lot of access going to the races and, and stupid shit like that as a, you know, a dumbass, uh, 19, 20 year old. But to really get into the sport, if you have your heart set on it, you know, you just got to go there and work hard and they'll reward that. You know, you get the know-how. It's not rocket science. You can figure it out. You know, it doesn't take an engineering degree. But now in the big series, to really get to that next level, you probably do have to have a master's degree to almost, you know, to learn these things and set these cars up. So, yeah, it's a well-oiled machine, no pun intended. I mean, it's it's a it's a tight organization they had to run in there it's a tight ship and nascar yeah. ha- they've become more not corporate but more of like transparent in the last few years with the whole like bubble wallace thing and uh, they're trying to be more of a I, I don't know like how has nascar changed in the past five years i'm not sure but i know there's been a change well it hasn't just been the past five years like people have art like there's a huge discussion around this i mean like we could talk for hours on this which i'm 
sure the listeners would. Uh, we are. We're here all day. Tune out. But uh, no way. there was an argument, too, that like Jeff Gordon, when he came into the sport back in 93, you had Dale Earnhardt there, who was the man. Richard Petty had left the sport the year before. So now you had like Jeff Gordon, this new boy from Southern California coming in there, and he wasn't you know, a Southerner, he wasn't a true like NASCAR guy, but he could drive the shit out of a race car and he whooped all those asses. Yeah. So, yeah. Everybody. But Dale Earnhardt liked that. He liked going back and forth and he actually marketed on that rivalry that the rivalry that was probably more of a rivalry for the fans than it was actually on the track, you know? So Dale Earnhardt was very smart in terms of bringing the corporate side in to market his name. He was the first driver to market his name and started what are what have what has now become like you go to the track now and there's souvenir trailers for each driver, mostly the big drivers. You don't see like a souvenir tra- trailer for like Michael McDowell who won the Daytona 500 just because he doesn't have a huge fan base. But they each get a percentage of all the diecast T-shirts, hats, jackets, pant like everything, lanyards, everything sold in there. They get a percentage of it, and then you know obviously the drivers will come out to the trailers during a race weekend and sign a bunch of stuff and take questions from the fans, and it's. You know, very unique access that is unparalleled in any sport. You get you get right up next to the driver and, and shake hands with him and talk to him for a few That's minutes. That's awesome. Yeah, you don't see that in other sports. You're not meeting LeBron James outside the Staples Center and shaking hands and getting autographs from him. Yeah, and then that brought in the corporate side, which people really kind of loathe, like the, the good old, you know, southern NASCAR fans. And not just the southern ones. I'm kind of like harping on that. But, you know, me as a northern NASCAR fan, there's a lot, there's a lot of – racing heritage that goes back there too that we're big nascar fans as well and you know we're kind of you know like the the grassroots of the sport as well and you saw the corporate side get in there where everything's clean in victory lane you know i thank god my family you know all this stuff and that's fine but there was no like you want to see the driver's personality come through and that's what nascar was missing you know started to lose that you know especially after dale earnhardt died not just with all that stuff, but NASCAR kind of lost its way. And Jimmy Johnson, who was another one of the best NASCAR drivers that ever lived, won seven championships, fantastic NASCAR driver, but and a great guy off the track, like huge personality, but was confined to that corporate space when he got into victory lane. And everybody only saw that part of him was that corporate side. But you never all you remember him is Lowe's. He won a lot. Yeah. The number 48 yeah. car. He won a lot, but you know, you never got to, you never really could connect to that guy because it was like, you know, he's thanking Lowe's and Gatorade and like, who gives a shit about that? You know, yeah, I want to, I, I can, in NASCAR, you know, I want to know that after a race, this guy, I, I can sit down, have a beer with this guy and hang out. Yes. Talk to and that, that I'm very sympathetic to for fans that saw that kind of change. It was like, you have Johnny corporate coming in. It's like, all right, we're going to thank Lowe's and this and that. And, and it's, uh. That's, that happens with a lot of things. It happens with charity events. Uh, it happens with the hotels people like. It happens, you know, things get too corporate, and you're eventually like, ah, this just feels so like not good anymore. Yeah. And now NASCAR is kind of like they've realized, oh my god, we kind of made a mistake here. So they're letting these guys show a little bit more personality, which is good. But there's still there's still those yeah. corporate ties. They still have to be. And I understand that they're get paid millions of dollars that is on the side of their car, on the side of the hauler, and on their pit box on Sunday. So you right. can't act like an asshole, a complete asshole. You can speak your mind, but you can't be a total douchebag either. So right, you, yeah, you can't say something that you're going to have a boycott in front well, of you. Well, you look, you know, at Kyle Larson, and it works both ways. Kyle Larson and Bubba Wallace. Kyle Larson, who I know personally. Um, I oh, really? 
I I know his cousin. Um, and I okay, I don't know Kyle Larson personally in terms of like if he got a call from me today, he he would know who the fuck I was. Uh, but I met him uh, in a personal sense at Talladega, and we hung out for a few hours. You know, that, 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 that's no one personally in my book. That's pretty close. Most people can't Only say that they've done that. Only because it, I know his cousin and his cousin knows Kyle and that, and that's the deal with that. So Kyle wouldn't know me, wouldn't be able to pick me out in a lineup. But anyway, you know, he gets pretty uh, cool though. He basically loses everything uh, this past year uh, because he said the N word during a, a, a virtual race when uh, we were all shut down for the COVID and uh, NASCAR wasn't running races. They were running virtual races. And he said it offline. It didn't go out over the air, but he said it offline, and it came to air. And, yeah, he was wrong. He shouldn't have said that. I mean, that's stupid. But he's also, I think, 23, 24. He's a, he, he, he wasn't using it in a derogatory fashion, but it shouldn't even be in his vocabulary, yes. But should he have been canceled because of that? No. No. A mistake no. to rejuvenate him. And luckily, NASCAR provided the platform for him to rejuvenate himself, and now he's got a great ride with Hendrick, a better ride than he was in before with Hendrick Motorsports. And he can do much more with that. It's going to take a little time to figure that out, to get everybody to mesh. But he's going to be fine. And then you take the flip side of that with Bubba Wallace, the black NASCAR driver who used to drive the Petty number 43, who had the noose in the garage. And Bubba didn't point any of that noose thing out. That was his team. And then That's Bubba, true, isn't it? Yeah. And it, you know, it wasn't a noose anyway, right? Personally, here's my deal. I don't think that noose was hung up there for because Bubba was using that garage. That noose was there previously. And right. Yes, but it did bring about, you know, maybe we shouldn't tie the garage handles in the form of a noose. There's other ways to tie those things. Okay, let's not make a big deal about that. But unfortunately, it already, the, the cart got ahead of the horse there. And Bubba then had to become the face of that aspect, that racial aspect in NASCAR, which has, NASCAR has a history of being Southern Tide, Southern Roots. Sure, it comes with the territory. <laughs> the rebel flag, the Confederate flag, all that stuff. So he had to come out in front of that, and he did, and he did a great job in it. And if you look on his Twitter, there's people that say horrible things to that poor guy. Oh, I couldn't. I, I, I can imagine. He's a kid. He's a kid. He's yeah. He just wants to I'm race too, right? He's not like he, he never said it. You know, you know better than I ever will. But to my knowledge, he never came out and was like, "Yo, I'm black. I'm going to be the spokesperson for this thing because it's he." He kind of just is a kid that wants to race cars, <laughs> and he's good at it. Am I right? You, you can look at his career rise, and he wasn't the black NASCAR driver that wanted to be the black NASCAR driver. He wanted right. to be the NASCAR driver. That's it. Yeah. Nobody knows your skin color when you're in that car strapped in. Nobody knows how big or how small or how big and fat you are when you're in that car. It's I all didn't realize he was black until that thing came out. I've heard yeah. Bubba Wallace for years. I didn't realize he was black. I actually assumed he was white with a name like Bubba in NASCAR. I, I assumed it was a white guy. <clears throat> yeah, so it's. I promise I don't have COVID. Just <clears throat> a little tickle in the throat here. Let's look um, at that. Well, you just got back from your twenty-one day Chinese cruise with yes, the wife, right? It was fantastic. Got a great, got a great discount on it. Quite you put a, pay, a Facebook post once up. You were like, it was right around the pandemic. You go, I just got back from my twenty-one day Chinese cruise. Who wants to hang out? So I started using that. And my dad's like, Hey, Matt, what's up? And he was making jokes. He's like, Yeah, I was at a bar hugging people all last night. Where were you? I was like, oh, I was at a twenty-one day cruise. Got a little cough. Ready to hang out. Yeah. You gave me weeks of material, Bob, with that post. I can't. I can't smell anything, but it's okay. I feel great. <laughs> have you, have you, yeah, you like, ever had to get tested for COVID? Yeah, I have a few times. Yeah, and I've 
Trump negative. I want to get the antibody test because I think I've already had it because I think I had like back like even like last January. I think I probably had it, you know. Me too. I think I had it last January because I was sick for like 10 days and my wife was hospitalized with the flu for three days. Yeah. So we we think we had it. Yeah. And I just had the sniffles because I have like a pretty high immune system. I was just like uncomfortable, but she was pretty banged up. So we think we had it. Yeah, I think so too. But the whole Bubba Wallace thing, it's overblown. Yeah. And I think a lot of NASCAR fans, which makes me incredibly angry, like when anybody, when anybody brings it up, makes me very angry. And it's irrational on my part to get that angry about it because that's their problem, not mine. What are they bringing up? Well, just the fact that you know, like he's this like social warrior and he didn't sign up for that. He signed up to drive a race car. He was put in that position and he had to speak out. It was almost like when, uh, you know, Obama with Reverend Wright, you know, you know, goddamn America, where yeah. it forced him to actually make a race speech in Philadelphia before the election in 2008 to have to do that. And, and didn't sign up for that. And for a kid who is, you know, under 30 years old, who just wants to race cars, and he's a very good race car driver, regardless of his skin color. I don't give a shit about his skin color. And he's made stupid mistakes. He's done stupid things. He sucks on road courses. But I like the guy. He's a hard racer and he's fun to root for because he's I like his personality, too. You know, that's most of the reason why I like him, because a lot of these guys, they all can drive a race car. You know, basically it pairs down to who do you identify with most, you know, in terms of their personality and who could you see yourself sitting down with and hanging out with? Having a beer with. And see that with him? The guys. That's you know? cool. That's, yeah. So that's what it comes down to. And I hate the fact that it's become that point, you know, and yeah. that's the politics in our country. And I hope that goes away, that it's not a social issue and it should not be a political issue either. He should no. be able to, you know. Let the and, guys race. Let the let the guys play, you know. And he's driving for Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin, who's a NASCAR driver. Michael Jordan and Denny Hamlin's new team now, the 23 car. And he did very good last evening and last mor- this morning at Daytona. Unfortunately, he got caught a lap down with a loose lug nut. But uh, oh. very competitive car. And I think he he's a good shot to win a few races this year. He hasn't won yet because he's been in subpar equipment. But he's in some pretty good equipment now. They but, but it's a new team as well, and he has to mesh with that. And we'll see what they can do. But, you know, he's a really good dude. And I like he's really done a very good job. I don't think I could have done – uh, anywhere near close to what he has been able to do in terms of handling the situation at his age. Uh, That's a lot of pressure and a lot of spotlight. On top, of of sign up. on top of having the pressure with your sponsorships and just being a regular race car driver, that's a lot of pressure to perform and then right. add all that garbage on top of it. So, and it's not garbage. I'm just saying, you know, just like a lot of crap he has to deal with. So he, so he, he's a job. Absolutely, yeah, and that's a lot of that's a lot of responsibility for ultimately a kid to have to take on when you just want to race cars um, to be thrown in that to be thrust in that kind of spotlight. The he so he did not finish. Uh, Bubba Wallace finished with thirty two points. Lap down. He finished one lap down. One lap down. Seventeenth place. DNF is do not did not finish. Yes. Yeah. So there was a few of these guys. There was Jay Logano, Keselowski, Kyle Busch. Cindric, these were these guys all. Because, was this because of that? Was those guys were in that last lap crash, which was horrible because Keselowski's okay. car got up into the catch fence, and NASCAR is going to eventually have to come to terms with doing something about these catch fences because eventually it is going to kill another driver um, because these catch fences keep the cars from going into the grandstands or going outside of the racetrack, but they also act as a giant cheese grater when you're going 200 miles an hour in these cars, and if you were to hit like roof up. 
on one of these catch fences, it's going to cheese grade the car down and cheese grade you down. And they've already had that happen back 20 years ago at Charlotte where they basically got to a driver's car that hit the fence in a, a dash series race, a lower level that they don't even run anymore. And the only thing that was left was the top of the driver's torso. His head oh, was what? Blood. his blood was like sprayed all over the fans and the grandstands and really bad. No way. Yeah, you can look it up. Charlotte, I think it was like 1995 or 1996. Uh, Dude, good that's crazy. These, these fences are really just to protect the spectators from Yeah, and what they're going to have cars. to do is have some sort of mechanism there that bounces the car, the car hits the fence, and bounces it back into, you know, unfortunately back into traffic. But you hope that, you know. Oh, so my they God, dude. It was Russell Phillips. Much. Yeah. It was bad. If you read the uh, reports, like the guys walking up to the car were slipping on what they thought was oil, but it was his blood. Oh, man, I can't. So I'm looking at it right now. Beating. His heart was still beating with just like a torso. What? When that poor guy. Blood everywhere. Well, he didn't even know what hit him. Russell Thanks. Phillips, he, he crashed, Bob, you're right, in 1995. Uh, and exactly what you said, that's so horrible that's such a terrible way to die uh decapitated dismembered um they people there were calling it the most gruesome wreck they've ever seen yeah because you can see from the stands because his whole car was opened up like a can opener and this was because of the what do they call the fence around it catch fence this was because of that because the chain link fence with like supporting wires going through like hardcore wires to keep these cars like you know a 3400 pound stock car from going through the fence so they're pretty Wired sturdy. I mean, it's sturdy as hell. What so can they do about that? Driver, it's going to protect the fans. It's it's dangerous though, but you obviously can't push fans back. You need fans want to be up close. That's part of sports. Yeah. Do you think they can do something? They're, they're going to have to do something to like fix that. Eventually, another NASCAR driver will get killed, and that's when they'll do it. They won't do it until somebody gets killed. Is it is NASCAR synonymous with the NFL, where more and more people are like, it's so dangerous. Because you know how NFL, there's this whole big thing about concussions. Is, is NASCAR entering that territory with the crashes? Well, I think uh, it's different because football, like more people play football than they do drive race cars. So you have a little bit more, True. I guess, familiarity with football. Like you can relate with it. Like Good I point. can relate with football. I can't really relate with NASCAR. I've never sat in a car, you know, I've sat in a stock car, I've sat in a dirt car, but I've never sat in a car and raced it against guys and like have been in a crash during a race. Right. So I can't relate to that, but I can relate to football and things that are going on there. But I think NASCAR is almost accepted that this is auto racing. People are going to die in auto racing. And to a certain extent, yes. And Dale Earnhardt gives a, Dale Earnhardt gave a great interview. I think it was back in 96 or 97 where he said, you know, drivers here complain we're going too fast. And I look him in the eye and say, you want to race or not? Let's race. There you go. So, you know, that's the point. those guys are getting paid millions of dollars. And it doesn't negate the fact that they have families and children and things like that. But they are getting paid millions of dollars. They know the risks they take. And they're taking a big risk every weekend strapping into that car. And that's what it's all about, too. That's part of the sport. That's part of the sport. They make it as safe as they can, but it's not going to be completely 100% safe. And that's what no, they know. And what is? What is 100% safe? I mean, any job, even a, a simple job like, uh, you know, I, I 
clean floors of the airport. You still have, uh, there's a one percent chance of a plane crashing into you or somebody killing you or you slipping. I mean, there's yeah, it's nothing just not is safe. Spectacular with you cleaning floors. That is as it is on TV with you dying in a race car crash. You know, right? It becomes like you know, it's on video and everybody can look at it from different angles and shit like that. You know. Yeah, and all, and with um, because I, I I get the one point where you think it's dangerous, but I I agree more on the side where it's an occupational hazard. Not that anybody wants to get hurt. Most people aren't are not going to get hurt. But when you're getting paid that much, it's kind of part of the job. And I, I feel like these sports make it. They try to make it as safe as possible. Nobody wants unnecessary lawsuits and deaths. So even football, you know. They they say we're very comfortable with the way it is. Of course they have to say that, but uh, I feel like they're they're trying to make it as safe as you as they possibly can with the science at hand. Yeah, and and they do that, and you know it, it's it it just is what it is at this point. You know, you, you step in that car, and that's what you're with, and they're going to make it as safe as possible. And there's even you know people crying in NASCAR that they've made it too safe, and these drivers take too many chances now that put them in more precarious situations than they would have been doing otherwise and it's almost like a double-edged sword too but you know the racing has definitely been way more intense these last 10 years than it has ever been like his his crash at daytona last year really showed off in full display like the aspects of the safety involved in nascar where if that accident had happened on the same race where dale Earnhardt had died uh ryan newman would have been killed instantly what what was the difference um, just the head and neck restraint system, the Hans oh, device, which goes around your neck and that keeps your head from wet, whipping forward in a crash. So you hit the wall going 185 miles an hour, your head is still going 185 miles an hour. Oh, yeah, you're done. It causes, it causes a basal or skull fracture, which fractures the bones. Now, it's basically an internal decapitation. So that's, that's your a, neck breaks and it severs your spinal cord too. And like you're turned off, like it's control out delete, baby. We're done. Oh my gosh, that is done. When and that's when what happened to Earnhardt. And Newman like hit the wall, had that, and then got hit again on his roof, right where his helmet was, and like literally had a stock car hit him doing a hundred and ninety oh, miles an hour man. and survived that as well. So like it was the best display of everything that could have happened. And for a while, NASCAR didn't release his condition and they put up like shades and everything in front of his car wreck. And I thought we just lost Ryan Newman again. And it was shades of Dale Earnhardt. Uh, but thankfully, you know, then they showed that picture of him walking out of the hospital with his daughters, and that was the best thing you could ever see. Oh, yeah, that is good. That's great news to see that. So yeah. the advancements in, like, safety, yeah, they're working pretty well. Because of Dale Earnhardt, her, his, not because of, you know, he was a safety advocate, uh, because of his death, unfortunately. He was not really a safety advocate. He, he had the ear of Bill France, who was the, uh, you know, the France family owns NASCAR. And Bill France Jr. at that time was the leader of NASCAR back in the early 2000s. And yeah. uh, they tried a lot of things, and the Hans device was in use. A bunch of drivers drove in the race in the 2001 Daytona 500 that Dale Earnhardt drove in. Um, Dale Earnhardt did not have a Hans device on, and if he did, it would have saved his life. Oh, man. So now it's obviously a mandatory requirement for any yes, racer. Not just the Hans device, but any head and neck restraint device. And now the seats, you look at the seats, man, and you sit in there and it's like, you know, you are in like a capsule. You're not moving. Yeah. When, when Dale uh, Earnhardt p- passed away, um, you said he wasn't a big safety guy. Was it, was he, his argument that it wasn't like real to the sport or it was uncomfortable because was, like, what was his point because of that? 
and it wasn't just him. It was a bunch of other drivers too. It was uncomfortable. Uh, like it, it, feels, it sounds up. uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's more uncomfortable to die. Locks your head. It locks your head. Basically, you can't even turn your head left to right. You have to look straight forward and really depend on your spotter. And Dale Earnhardt even wore an open face helmet because he liked to be able to feel when he was driving past cars and in order to suck up to them and draft them, he could feel the pressure inside his car change. And he could gauge that pressure in terms of how he's going to draft the car with him. And how that's an athlete right there. Yeah. Like that's an athlete. And he also mounted his seat very low on the racing boards, almost like to the point where you're like dragging the track. Cause he liked to, he, he wanted his ass to feel what the race car was doing and That's you an can't athlete. Do that anymore. And his seatbelts broke during the accident as well. He hit the steering wheel, not just his neck snapped, but he also hit the steering wheel with his chin and, it, and he probably shat. Like, it was probably a really bad sight that Ken Schrader after the accident, the driver, Ken Schrader, who walked up to the car and pulled his window net down, looked in, saw with Earnhardt it was pretty it was a probably a pretty bad situation because I've seen pictures of the inside of the race car and look like a shotgun blast of blood like to the front windshield uh, all over the dashboard like it was brutal in there but so he, he was died, he died instantly he died instantly thank god he didn't suffer yeah thank thank, thank god for that in the sense that no suffering maybe we can talk about something more uplifting Mr. Yeah, Clark. so so let's so NASCAR just to wrap up the Daytona 500. Congratulations to uh, Mr. Michael McDowell, and uh, not congratulations to a D. Cope who finished last. You big <laughs> stupid loser. Yeah, well, I can tell you why he was even in the race. Why? Derek Cope won the 1990 Daytona 500 because Dale Earnhardt was leading the Daytona 500 going to turn three on the last lap. And blew a tire. No way. I love how you know that. Literally, you can see, like, you can see the tire. Like, I remember watching it live and crying. And my dad is laughing at me, like, you're crying at a NASCAR race, son. (laughs) I like your dad. But blew a tire. And if you look at the replays, you can see him going down the backstretch on the last lap. And the tire, the the right rear tire is coming apart. It's like flying rubber everywhere. And as soon as he gets in the third turn, the car slides up the track and Derek Cope goes by. Damn, those guys, these guys, they have longevity. You can race for like 30 years in this business. If you're like in your 20s, you can race well in your 50s, right? Uh, back then you could, I think now with the way the cars are and the way the heating works during the races where it gets up to like 150, 160 degrees inside the race car, you can't no. be a fat slobby mess in no. there. And you can't <laughs> be like uh, Dick Trickle who installed right. a cigarette lighter on the car and had a <laughs> Uh, he wore a full face helmet and had a hole cut in the middle so he could smoke a cigarette during the, the best, the best racer at my favorite athlete yeah. ever for that. I, I, love, I, I, I love, love that. Cigarette cigarette laps and he's, he's lighting a heater. It's just amazing. Yeah. You can't, it's not like the old days where you can sweat out. I was thinking Dick trickle my head too. When you said him, you can't be like sweating out booze with a cigarette and racing in that. And today. Dick trickle was like, he loved to drink, loved to party. He unfortunately committed suicide. He had a lot of problems going on, but he would say that I only need an hour of sleep for every 200 miles of race. So you'd only get like two or three That's hours a night before the race. And it would drink all night with party. So who, who, who was the gentleman, the other driver that unfortunately caught HIV, I believe? Tim Richmond. Tim Richmond. Who was the better of the two? I know they're two different. Tim piece. Richmond was probably the better talent. But Dick Trickle was the guy who got there just based on grit and hard work. 
Tim Richmond could literally just get in a car and just drive it and drive the wheels off and be like, all right, yeah, I'm better than you. Okay. And That's we'll how it worked. But Dick Trickle had to work at it. And he did. And he made it to the top and stayed at the top for a very long time, which I think is more, I don't want to like give respect, but like I admire a Dick Trickle and his work ethic more than a Tim Richmond. But I love Tim Richmond. I, I, I love what he did and I admire him as well. But I admire them for both, you know, different reasons. Different things. Yeah. Very eloquently said. This was a great NASCAR chat with Bob. I really, uh, I enjoy talking about NASCAR. I could listen to you talk about it all day because you're an expert on it. And I love that Dick Trickle had a cigarette in the car, like a, a lighter installed. He was that like much of a rock star. Well, back in the day, they like they all smoked. They all smoked in the car. In the first Daytona 500 at the Speedway in 1959, one of the drivers had his pet monkey with him. <laughs> that's amazing. In the car. Uh, that's amazing. That's what. And we at need. Darlington, one of the all, the drivers also. This is 1958 or 1959, maybe 1960. He had a Bloody Mary with him, and he was drinking it during the race. <laughs> and he got into a horrible wreck. Well, why aren't there more movies about this? There's Days of Thunder, and that's it. Like, well, I think an- because NASCAR has been pigeonholed as kind of, it, and it still is kind of like it's a redneck Bubba sport. You know, it kind of is. Is still that what it is? Today. I think so, and I think it becomes. Days of Thunder, even in Days of Thunder, it's still not a relatable sport. And Days of Thunder was made in 1990. Yeah. They did a great documentary on Fox Sports 1 about Days of Thunder. You need to see it. It's excellent. The making of the movie and how they did it. Oh, really? And uh, Jeff oh, Gordon should have never driven the 24 car. He should have been driving the 46 car of Cole Trickle. Oh, Cole Trickle. It goes into that and why they Damn, did Damn, I'll watch that. It's excellent. It's really well done. Oh, I'll check it out. I always love your recommendations. Oh, all the complications that they ran into and what NASCAR said, no, you can't do that. They actually qualified the the movie cars for the race. NASCAR made them qualify. The cars had to be raceable. They had to qualify them for the race, and they wow. did. <laughs> I would watch that. All of your recommendations I watch. I, I watched that space shuttle one about – it was the night of the inauguration, I believe. Okay. And uh, I, it was a YouTube link you sent me on the space shuttle. Yeah. Yeah, and I watched very, that. very aged, very aged, but it's good. Like, it's like fun aged, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's so fun. I didn't hear a response back from me, so I was kind of like, oh, I may have struck out on that one with uh, Clark there. No, no, no. I, I, wait, what did I say? I don't remember. I don't think you, I'm not sure you said any. <laughs> I'm not sure you oh, said no, no, anything. I did, I did watch it, and because, um, I have to go back and look at it. I was, uh, yeah, I remember my, my dad's friend. I saw him in the, like the first six minutes yes, or something. Yes, you told me about that, yes. And I say friend loosely. I don't think they really talk that much, but like they, they knew each well, other still, for a few still, years. And, yeah. uh, but awesome. I watched it, and I think with, if you really care about something that's interesting, you'll watch it no matter the quality. Like I, I've found yeah. stuff on YouTube of movies, like TV movies I love, like The Stand from like 94 that they just don't show anymore. And I found like grainy footage and I'll watch it. Cause I'm like, this is enjoyable. And I think that holds up with stuff like the space shuttle thing you sent me. If it's, if it's entertaining, like you're going to watch it. Cause I it's think cool that shit. Was, that was a discovery channel, like production where the discovery channel was just getting on their feet in yeah. Cape. And, but I think they still did a pretty good job. They, and they still, they got, they, did. they only got really good access. So that's what all I care about is the access and talking to some of those guys. And that's all I give a shit about. Yeah. Yeah. What is it with exactly? What is it with space movies or uh, I say space movies. That could be anything that could be star Wars, but like space USA space exploration, NASA, they're either really, really great or they're terrible and they miss the mark. 
You know, like they never did like a good TV series about the, the shuttle. I think, I think a lot of it because it's government funded. You don't have a big push from private industry behind it. Now, obviously, you do. And yeah. we might see some of that stuff. But it's really not like it's not like we've shifted as a society as well. I think just in the past like 10 or 15 years, we've shifted, shifted as a society where, you know, with this social media, we can get everything now. And we're not looking towards these documentaries to tell us like how things work or all that stuff. We think we can figure it out on the fly and we, we can't, but anything that'll trip our switch, you know, in terms of, Ooh, I want to watch that is going to be more dramatic and like, just not as like more emotionally stimulating than intellectually stimulating. So yeah, it's not going to be as sexy if, a, if it's not like dramatic and I want to click it now. And I'm but, I fall into the same trap. I mean, like the same thing. Like you know, it's it's like I want to see people like beat the shit out of each other. Yeah, that's fun to watch. Yeah, After right. that, there's a little bit of an empty feeling. You know, I want to have something like uh, you know, uh, I want to do the you know the documentary with the pale blue dot again. You know, I want some PB great <laughs> people's documentary. I want. I want some more Ken Burns. I want some of that stuff. And yeah. yeah put your ass to sleep, but I love Ken sorry. Burns. That's I love the, the Civil War. You know, you know what's cool though? We're, we're, uh, the thing that's so amazing to me about like watching this about the space program is not so much like watching it. Like the launch and everything is always exciting and always gives me sure. goosebumps. But that's it's only, everything behind the scenes. What's that? That's only three minutes of the whole mission. I mean, right, yeah, it's three minutes, and it's like it's like me during sex. It's three minutes, and that's and then you it blows up. No, but it's like uh, it's everything going on behind the scenes. How you don't doing? How we doing it here? <laughs> cometh, Georgia. The um, is it cometh coming? Cummings, Georgia. Coming. Yeah, coming. Yeah, Cummings. It's I'll take uh, that when you come down. Yeah, let's go to Cummings. This the stuff that I like. No, sorry, I keep interrupting you. Oh no, no, no! I'm I'm. Sp- Fixed on Cummings, Georgia now. No. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Uh, all of the, the people behind the scenes during launches in the space program, like how many things could go wrong at any second that did it, it they're almost destined to fail, and they don't, which is, like, a, to me, which is why it's America's finest hour. You know, you look at, I'm not even talking about Apollo 13. That was amazing um, how they, they, they solved that. But, like, when we watched the first man, you're talking about, like the capsules they're going into on the Mercury or the Gemini programs, like how primitive that was that they actually pulled that off in the sixties with like no, with analog computers is still like way ahead of its time. It's amazing to me. It truly is. And I'm reading a book right now that goes through like every single space shuttle launch in painful detail. And, you know, only because I'm interested in it, like it, it's called wheel stop. Called Wheel Stop, and he does two versions of it: the one before Challenger and the one after Challenger. What's it called? Wheel Stop. Okay. I'm sorry. No, it's good, and it talks about like all the complexities, not just of the hardware involved in the mission, but actually conducting the mission itself, and like what had to be done, and like what they were like. You know what? I don't. Not sure we can do that on orbit, but we're gonna try. And you know, some of it worked, some of it didn't. <clears throat> and we only get a snapshot of that. Yeah. News stories. And it's unbelievable, like what they were trying to do, what they did, and like what they did that out 
shot the expectations and what the space shuttle did. And the space shuttle like intrigues me the most because it was not only like an intriguing aeronautical vehicle, like the most impressive air, like aerospace vehicle you could ever invent. Unbelievable. Way ahead of its time. We're never going to see anything like that because we can't fly it safely. We're not going to be able to fly it safely for the next hundred years, you know, perfectly safely. It's, we don't even have the technology to fly it safely right now. Um, we're never going to see anything like that again. We're only going to look at it in the, the Smithsonian and, and, you know, in awe and wonder at, you know, <clears throat> the brave men and women who strapped themselves into that thing on yeah. seven pounds of thrust and went into orbit on it with no escape plan. It's but amazing. The thing that shuttle did was unbelievable. I mean, it was just, it's amazing the missions and the things that those men and women did. And what's really cool about this book too is like it's yeah. men and women and they humanize them. It's you and I. It's you and I, Clark, like going to work in the morning and like waking up and like just regular people. They're not superheroes. They're not like, you know, I'm willing to die for my country. You know, <laughs> not like that at all. <clears throat> it's people, you know, going to work, doing their best and just, you know, getting a paycheck and they have normal families and they live in the middle class life. And it's, heroes. that's it. It's amazing. And, and for, that, for them to show that this book <laughs> humanizes them in the sense that like, you know, they have bills and they're trying to. They're just trying to live their life, but they're doing something extraordinary. To pull that off, though, with the shuttle, because the first shuttle was launched in, what, 81? 81. April 81. 81. First shuttle was in 81, and just to encapsulate that and, and that emotion, to actually pull that off uh, is incredible. Robert Crippen, the pilot, didn't even think like they were going to go. He kept his old truck <coughs> at Johnson Space Center parked because you get, like, prime parking when you're the prime crew you park closest to the astronaut quarters in the building at Houston. Now they're down in Florida launching, but his old pickup truck, he's like, I'm glad I gave, he said it to John Young about three minutes before they launched. I'm glad I gave the keys to so-and-so because I think we're going to go now, buddy. Oh, he didn't think he was going <laughs> to take off. Yeah. He thought they were going to have to go back to Houston and work out all these problems. He'd be driving, oh, wow. you know, having beers talking about <laughs> it. That's crazy. <laughs> I'm sorry. You better get, you better get that I'm Wuhan cough. I don't know if I have a typhoid or just the cough. Just the cough. The, uh, are you still good to go a few minutes longer? Oh, yeah. No, no. Let's, let's, we can change topics. Let's pivot. Come on. Oh, no, no. I just wanted to make sure you're okay. The, uh, the, how long are the, was the first shuttle launch? Um, not the launch, the, the, the trip. First mission? Yeah. I think it was uh, just under three days, two and a half days. That's a long time. <clears throat> I mean, for something that's not, ever been in space before with that kind of, you know, caliber of, of that's riding on you and all these the unknowns. Thing, the biggest thing was they were afraid of uh, the launch itself would shake all the thermal tiles off the orbiter, which then means it would not be able to come back to reentry and safely bring the astronauts home. So they actually thought like, <clears throat> this was like a year before the launch. They thought about putting like a protective cage around the orbiter. Just for Cage? launch, burn off during reentry to hold the heat tiles on. Oh shit! And the engineers were like, "No, you can't do that because this is going to rub against the heat tiles and it's going to take away everything that you just tried to protect." Oh man! And when Robert Crippen and John Young, the basically like, <clears throat> I look at Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, huge balls to land on the moon. Robert Crippen and John Young, John Young, the commander, Robert Crippen, the pilot of the first space shuttle launch, biggest balls you will ever see because oh, that yeah? was a vehicle that you had no escape from, 
and was never tested before. They never tested the solid rocket boosters that were really going to push you into space vertically before. It was all horizontal tests. So we don't know what the hell is these things like. Oh, man. That's and ballsy. They open up the cargo bay doors, and they see a whole bunch of missing tiles on the back of the uh, orbital thrusting pods in the back of the shuttle near the pole. And they're like, oh, my God. So if we're missing <laughs> tiles there... What does it look like underneath that we can't see? Yeah, what happened? And I'm talking like Bill Clinton now. Man, I'm glad I'm Val- not Valentine's here. here. I do not Dude. have sexual relations with that woman. Valentine's Day is the only VD I like to get. <laughs> Slick, tricky dick. But they Slick don't know. And, like, and engineers at that time were saying, like, okay, you lose yeah. one tile on the bottom, it's a fucking zipper effect. Like, they go through re-entry and it, like, zippers all the tiles off. You're going to burn to death. Fuck you. Ah. <laughs> But, but they saw that and they were like, okay. And then I read a great book called uh, Into the Black. And it's not about having sex with an uh, African-American prostitute. Because that's what I thought it was. Because I read that one. Yeah. Into the Black Bush. Yes. It can be. I mean, there's I mean, there's an adventure there. That's a whole other conversation. But on the other side, the space shuttle. Uh, this talks about how they set up the spy satellites to actually photograph Columbia's belly. And they went with the CIA, and they can't even report on some of this stuff. There's, like, redacted shit to, to show that the shuttle was actually going to be able to probably make it through reentry. Shit. So and some a of the whole s- thing around the mission just based on that. So, so they based a lot of it on the CIA sets <laughs> that they and could, like, like, get imagery. John Young, the commander of the mission, was not top secret cleared. Robert Crippen was. So they could only tell Robert Crippen on the shuttle. They couldn't oh, tell John Young. Damn. Like, doing and robert crippen couldn't tell john young <laughs> and this is at the height of the cold war like, yeah there's, there's yeah. a lot of stuff going on and really a lot of people don't realize the space shuttle is what crippled the soviet union in the cold war that's what because we eventually spent the soviet union to death in terms of driving them out of business in terms of the cold war yeah <laughs> i learned that from you space shuttle, the buran the buran in the cold war and it spent them out it spent them out of everything and they built a few of them and we spent them into the ground because of the American space shuttle. It's amazing. We outspent them. And <coughs> I've, I've learned that from you because we talked about that before. And it's funny to see the relics of what happened with that. Here you have the space shuttle and the Smithsonian with a storied, <coughs> legendary history. And the Buran is literally rotting in the desert in like Kazakhstan or some shit. No security, just rotting away like a failed... And it was a, it was like remote controlled, right? Um, it's sad. Yeah, because they didn't fly any astronauts on it because they were too wimpy to put men on that first ship where we yeah. had the balls to do it. Yeah, they didn't do it. It was all, they only did one flight in that thing where we did, how many space yeah. shuttle flights were there? Like seven? 111. 111 flights or missions? I think, yeah, I think so. It, and they got the Buran in the, into the, into the, yeah. into space once, right? Yeah, and we also killed a lot of people doing it, though. <laughs> but hey, America prevailed. That's all that matters. We did. We did. And we did it all in public view, too, which the Soviets would never have done. Never. Now, there's, yeah, you read about the cosmonauts and things like that and Soviet trips and how much this they tried to cover up. external tank. There it is. That's, is that why you bought that? I hope it is. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's I why hope I it is. $30 on a Yeti. Uh, is yeah. that what it is? Sucker. It is. It is the external tank. It's perfect. Well, yeah, we outspent them in the Cold War. They couldn't keep up. They bankrupted yeah, the Soviet like Union. 
Yeah, we uh, our economy prevailed. It there wasn't see it was our economy. Thanks, Reagan. Yeah. That's exactly. Reaganomics at work right there. Absolutely. Well, make America <laughs> it's morning in America again. And uh and then George Washington said to John Adams, the first state of the union. But don't worry, I wasn't there. Um <laughs> I, I love it. I love you ever listen you ever YouTube Reagan's jokes because he tells the, he told the same jokes over and over again, but they're actually pretty funny. No, he was good, and he was a trained, uh, yeah, you know, he was trained, at, you know, being a spokesperson for GE and all that stuff. He owned yeah. his craft in politics with that, and he was very good. Like, and I, I love Ronnie Reagan. I love Ronnie Reagan. I don't Me agree too. with everything that he did, but I love Ronnie Reagan. I love him. I love him. He's one of these in my top three favorite presidents. It's yeah. Kennedy, Roosevelt, or it's Kennedy, Lincoln, and Reagan. Those are my top three. Ugh. With with James Monroe right after yeah, William Henry Harrison spy. Lincoln Truman. You got Lincoln and Truman. I don't know about the third one. Lincoln Truman's up there. <clears throat> See, Kennedy, Kennedy wasn't the best president. I just like him the best because he was good looking, Roman Catholic. He had like the, the Kennedy uh Well he fits flair. right into your Irish stereotype. Yeah, Clark. Irish Frank. <laughs> Came, you know, they, I'm gonna they go had here cool and go here as best president I can. I can do as I can do, and and then it'll be great. I fellow Americans, I'll wear this if you come down to the White House first thing, Jackie. You'll get some blowjobs in the White House pool. <laughs> I I do love uh, in 13 days uh, the accents they do. Like Kevin Costner's just like you That's bastard, so you won't eat that. So have Jackie pick it out. Hours. Have Jackie pick it out. <laughs> This isn't Holy Order, Mother Mary, or the Meek, now, is it? It's called loyalty. Loyalty. <clears throat> I'll tell you, that, that new movie, 13 Days, is like you could write a book on that and make it like some of the best, like the best, the best and the worst in leadership in terms of what went on there. Because he made a few mistakes and a couple things went his way, but he stuck to his guns and saw it through. And that was some of the best leadership that this country ever had. Otherwise, you and I aren't here. Otherwise, yeah, this doesn't exist. It's 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 came over in 1963 November, because yeah. yeah, he did stick it out. There were so many people second guessing him, and so many decisions he could have made, and he did make some bad ones. But there were so many decisions he could have made well, that could have went the other way. Yeah, everybody's gonna do that. He wasn't perfect. He was a very like he was a very flawed uh, human being, obviously, but also yeah. but as a leader and an ideologue, like he was great. And probably he it served him better. This is horrible to say that he was a basically a one term president because he would have caught a lot. He would have caught a lot more flack and been caught up a lot with Vietnam civil rights and all that stuff in terms of his legacy that would have been put on him. That I don't know where he would have gone, you know. And LBJ fought yes. with that and pushed that program forward. You know, you're absolutely right, Bob. Don't, they don't talk about that a lot too, and it's like. Uh, if Kennedy were to go on, I mean, he first started sending advisors to Vietnam. That would have obviously had to be stepped up, and who knows what what the Soviet Union would have done. And that would have it could have he could have been like ended as a Lyndon Baines Johnson. And if it wasn't for the Cuban Missile Crisis, he would have just been remembered for the Bay of Pigs. Ultimately, yeah, he was great. He was great though, just as far as oh yeah, flare. yeah. No, he learned from the Bay of Pigs. Like, hey, you know, you're going to step on your dick every now and then. You know, get yeah. up from it. 
It's easy. He also had chronic back pain. He admitted pain. he fucked up. He admitted he fucked up. Oh, my God. Imagine our president admitting you fuck imagine up. Imagine that. Does oh, it happen? God. What is that? Let me ask you this. Do you think somebody, do you think they would vote? Because the media's perception of everything is distorted, for, for better or for worse. Sure. Do you think they would, somebody like Roosevelt, um, Franklin Roosevelt, would be elected today a man in a wheelchair? No. I don't either. And I think that's terrible. And people don't just often the associate Roosevelt with the wheelchair, but he had polio. Well, and, you uh, the optics, and then you, then you, what the media would do is walk in everything else that was going on with his personal life and his rich family, and how he was, everything was going on in Campobello and all that other stuff. And then his, he basically married his third cousin, and oh my God. And, you know, once again, right. the rich family attack the rich, attack the rich, attack the rich. You know, yeah. It's, it's bizarre because they, they would well, – what's that? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you didn't. You didn't. You're good. I was just saying yeah, the media used to respect the president's privacy. But on the other hand, it was also a time when presidents were kind of – knew how to play the game a little bit more with their private sure. life. Sure. You know, now there's – with Trump and the <laughs> tweets and even with Clinton and the affair, there was like a time and a – I mean every president, most of them sure have done something that we probably yeah. didn't want to know about sure. that would hurt them. Yeah. But I felt like they played the game a little bit better then, where now it's kind of a give and take. The media, they, they probably should not dig so much and throw stories out there that aren't relevant yeah. to anything because it could hurt good candidates. But yeah. at the same time, like you, you need to class it up a little bit. Well, the media is not driven by political expediency. The media is driven by uh, what their ratings are going to be and what they report. So and that's, a, that's a terrible thing. Exactly. Yeah. It creates a terrible thing and it creates a terrible monster on the liberal side, creates a terrible monster on the conservative side. And, you know, you wrap all that stuff up and then you spin it out into these fringe bullshit outlets, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what does it do? On, if you look on at the, the, left side and the right side, it's awful. Yeah. And they, they spin it up and like, look at the, look at COVID-19 and the reporting. Yes, it's real. Yeah. It's pretty terrible. But the every day, all you see is you know eight hundred thousand more people infected, and, and all these people died. You don't really hear any news stories about the recovery rate. So if you were to get COVID nineteen, if I got it, I'd be scared to death because all I see is how how this is going to kill you. When statistically, you're never going to catch it, yeah. and if you do catch it, statistically speaking, based on the stats, you're gonna yeah, you're okay. gonna get over it. Yeah, but um, just the way they they spin it is, it's like you feel like it's a death sentence, like you just yeah. got terminal cancer yeah. and i think that's irresponsible media i don't know why i'm talking about this but it is no, Kennedy, you should be talking about it you have a microphone and you have a platform to do that you should be talking about it clark it's the bob and bob and clark hour right here bob clark who's a famous uh political guy who was bob clark he was in the kennedy administration i don't know I there don't was know. a bob clark then and i remember i was at the reagan um presidential <sighs> library and there was, uh, we were in the room where the podium was, and they showed, you know, the presidential podium. And they were showing on the wall, there's all these, like, there's a timeline of 1983, 1984, what he did. And one was a document, and it was, you know, advisor Joe Clark gives this, whatever. And that, that's my dad's name. And I was, I said to my wife, I was like, hey, it's my dad. And she's like, it's your dad. Joking. But, like, the, the tour guy that was in there was like, that was your father? And I'm like... Uh, your your math might be a little wrong because I was probably like two 
but it but it made sense. It could have fit. So I was like, yeah, that's him. All of a sudden, I was like the celebrity yeah. in there. And then I was like, he's not my father. I'm not going to lie at the library. About hey, if you want to take over a few passes. So I was like, I'm just kidding. So I did some impressions. But um, talking about speaking about Kennedy, though, just real quick, when we talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis, what he did, uh, that could have went really bad really quickly. Oh, yeah. I well, mean, you, had, you had at that time we were close. It was a very it was a very bad uh, relationship between the executive branch of the United States, which is the president, and then you have the military branch, which from that point, you know, you, you've gone through World War II, which the mil- the executive and military branch were essentially one. You've gone through World War II with Eisenhower. You had a general in there as president. And then you had Kennedy in there with the Bay of Pigs flop. And that's where it cut off. And Kennedy realized at that point, you cannot, I'm not saying you can't trust the generals, but you can't take their advice solely. Because here's the deal. The military is full of generals who have big weapons, lots of men who have lots of things and they want to use them. Yeah. Good point. Um, You don't want to necessarily always go that route because that's where they are coming from. They're not coming from the diplomatic side. They're coming from an operational military side. And Kennedy, after unfortunately, after the Bay of Pigs, figured that out. And that's why he was able to navigate, I yes. think, the Cuban Missile Crisis like he was to say, okay, hey, I got you in my back pocket. But we're not going to launch this shit because it's, it's mutually assured destruction. And we need to be very careful about that. So that's, that's well, I'm going to stay here. That's such a good point, and that's probably why when you talked about, uh, you know, they, they're fresh off the heels of World War II. Then you have Eisenhower, five-star general, in the White House, two terms, and then the Bay of Pigs flop. It's like, what happened? That's probably why during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the generals were so amped up about, like, let's attack and let's do the invasion because they needed to make up for the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, they were compensating maybe, but also, too, I think it's just, even today, like, it's just like, we have a lot of good toys here. Let's use them. Let's go. Let's go. And, so you kind of need, and you want to have that problem. You want to be able to hold the generals back. That's your yeah. job. That's your job as president is to hold them back. Keep them at bay. They give you great options, fantastic options. When the, di- when the diplomacy breaks down and when that diplomacy breaks down, yeah, we can rain hell on our. Yes. Ab- you always need that in the back pocket. We can do, do that. that. We are, we are absolutely capable of doing that. And they know that too. So. I- you know, our adversaries know that. So, but we, that's not the first option. We don't need to be like, you know, compensating for small dicks to walk around and being like, you know, right. <laughs> small, biggest defense ever. <laughs> no, it is nice to have that in the back pocket though. It's like being the toughest kid on the block, but you're also the smartest and the kindest. So you're like, well, we're going to try this like the, the, the Christian way, the adult way. Exactly. And if that doesn't work, you're, you're going to learn. You're the bigger person there. You go at them with, you know, we have all of this behind us. You know, we can crush you in six hours. Right. Uh, but we're not, we're not we can, using that. We can do it this way. And you guys have a way out and we can, we can work through you with that. So. Right. Yeah. That's, that's how it's always been with the United States as far as we've been a superpower. And I do, I can relate as just a civilian from the outside. If you, because I'm not a military man, but if you did have these $50 million planes on an aircraft carrier just sitting there all the time, I would probably want to use them too. Like, let's let's use some of this stuff. Like, we have them here <coughs> just sitting there. 
but that's yeah, not it's how it's extremely it tempting. It's extremely tempting. Not just that, but fifty, but cruise missiles. We can shoot. We can kill them before, like, and then send our planes in to just pick up the pieces, like to yeah, why clean I, it up? Like I would, yeah, up, but like bomb the fuck out of them. <coughs> that's that's probably where I would get into trouble. Not that I don't have restraint, but if there was like, if I was in some kind of position of power and there was some kind of conflict, hey, I'd hey. be like, you know what? What's that? Be careful. You're running for you're running for office. Oh right. What I meant was that's how I would restrain myself and exactly. think clearly. But but really, if you're if you're you're right, you're absolutely right. But if you're looking at uh objectively like the restraint that we use, it's pretty powerful because we, we could just start bombing the shit out. I mean even Bobby said in thirteen days, like we could just bomb the shit out of them. We all want to, it feel good. You know, yeah. but they didn't go that route. Great at the moment, but long term, not good. Yeah, that was a chess game. Ultimately, the Cuban Missile Crisis. They they put their piece here. Let's put our piece here. We're going to threaten to move this here unless you move this here. Yeah, and that, can... it's a chess game where you don't even know who you're talking to because you don't know if uh, if what's his face. Uh, God damn it, who's his name? Khrushchev. Khrushchev. If you're actually talking to Khrushchev, or you're talking to the you know the Politburo. And that's really scary because that's some 1984 shit right there where it's like, are you talking to a puppet government or are you talking to – who are you yeah, talking to? Because they didn't understand if like – like they're seeing these readouts come through on what is basically a fax machine in 1962. Right. And they're looking at that and saying like, OK, is this really Khrushchev or is this his generals? OK. Yeah, who are we respond to? OK. Then you have to decide not only – Okay, how are we going to respond to this? But who are we going to respond to? Is it Khrushchev or the generals? Because if you're responding to the generals, it's a much different response than if you're responding to Khrushchev, which could be more diplomatic and you know stately. Exactly. And 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 <laughs> on top of their responding, did they respond to the first fax or the second one? Yeah. You know, like which one is? Yeah, the second one came in and they ignored it. They ignored it completely. The first one. It's amazing. When when Russia when Russia when the Soviet Union put those uh, missiles into Cuba, those were offensive missiles, right? They were first oh, yeah. first yes. launch, first strike, first strike, first strike missiles. missiles. So that's very scary in the sense that they didn't announce they were doing that. Spy U uh, 2s found them. So Clock. what do you think? Like what are they doing? They're I would think they're absolutely planning an attack. They were. I don't think they were planning an attack, so to say. They were showing their muscle and being like, America. We can hit you whenever we want to. Because they also it wasn't only the missiles in Cuba; they had subs that parked on our shores outside of North Carolina and, and Norfolk, Virginia, going what? up that had ICBMs on. Oh my gosh! During the Cuban and Missile Crisis. Here's the deal, though. Here's the deal, though. Those guys apparently were not on the same communication channel as it was that were the people in Cuba with their missiles. Those guys, after Kennedy made his speech and said, you know, quarantine and all that stuff, and Khrushchev said, yeah, we're going to pull these guys back and not move anything in. Those guys in the subs, in the Soviet subs, parked out on our shores 12 miles away, literally sitting on the bottom, 140 feet of water. What? They didn't get the, they didn't get the memo. How long were they there for? Probably another week. That's crazy. And we picked them up on like sonar and stuff. We knew them. We knew they were there. Yeah, we were we were spotting. 
Damn, that's scary. How many do you think there were? But the Soviets didn't have the capability. They wanted this operation to show the Americans that they were strong and that like we can, you know, back your ass down. But they didn't have the communication with those subs. That's that's some scary shit. Yeah. And they had nuclear tip warheads on those subs. They could have blown up and quite honestly, yeah, obviously they're sitting off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia, down going through uh, South Carolina and probably right to the the tip of uh, you know, Georgia and Florida. And the Soviets had a lot of stuff. subs. Yeah. And they were very good at that stuff. Yeah, the Soviets were very good at submarines and their all their classes and I things mean, like that. I've watched Red October at least five times, so I know I've seen, I know what I'm talking about. Yes. I do love Hunt for Red October when they switch to <laughs> Russian to English. Because in the beginning, you're like, do we, are they really going to speak Russian the whole time? And then they zoom in and zoom out. And then it's like, well, of course we're heading to Norfolk. And you're like, okay, cool. All right. It's, English, it's American English again. I get it. Yeah. I, I tell you, yeah, I, you ever see a. Uh, blows uh, much more than we thought it would. What's that? That came to blows much more closely than we thought it would. Oh man, we were so close. When you look at all like the, the because the if something happened where that's one of the even one of those sub commanders thought that something was happening, he he could launch. There was no stop guard in between him and the Kremlin. And that would have been the end of it. That was it. Oh my gosh, it's super scary. How did the denuclearization of uh, the arsenal, um, re- reduction of the nuke arsenal, play out in the eighties and nineties? Because you know how like they were getting rid of nukes on each side? Does that really mean anything, or is that just for morale and like international peace treaty stuff? It's morale. We were getting rid of old weapon systems and old uh, yeah. ICBMs and things that we would have to replace anyway and discontinue. So, yeah. But it was on both sides, and you know, it was nice to put that in a great political affirmation on both sides. You know, it still did a lot of good. We can't take that away from it. It was still, oh, of course, good. yeah, we can't. And it's true, we can't let ha- any other countries obtain nu- nuclear weapons oh. ever again. Yeah, like that can never happen. No, anybody. They just you can't have them anymore. No. We, we just we, that cannot be a thing. Well, up your military. Eventually, you look at the the arc of humankind and we have it. Chinese have it. Russians have it. India, Pakistan, UK, Israel has it. Uh, Does the United Kingdom have it? I don't know. They might have it just like through us. They're not going to get fucked with without us. Uh, But eventually it's going to become an issue. And it's it's not if it's when. That's so, when. That's why sanctions are important and, and intelligence are important. You just you can never have a nuke again. Another country. Well, I just get hope to God it doesn't happen with our lifetime. That's all. If it does, I hope it's either President Clark or President Bob in power, and we can deal with that decisively by watching Thirteen Days a few times and knowing what to do. We'll see, Clark. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to get a blowjob in the White House pool or I'm uh, going to go over there and uh, help out these uh, pushing the Ruskies back. I'm not sure. I was, I was eating all. that. That's no, you weren't. Yeah, so I was eating that. No, you weren't. Bob and I, I like to reiterate, just because we're speaking of Kennedy, uh, I would like to reiterate that Bob, before we ever met, I was talking to John Hassinger, our friend. We were talking about the Kennedy assassination, and he goes, Clark, do you think it was conspiracy? And it was, was it more than one gunman? I said, no, it was one guy. It was, it was not. There was no shred of evidence that it was more than one, and it was one. It was one guy. It was right there, Dealey Plaza, and he goes, my friend Bob said the same exact thing. 
And that's when we first started talking before I even met you in Florida was we both agree on the lone gunman theory for the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. Lee Harvey Oswald had a good day. You have to, yeah, and that's exactly what I say. And you have to look at the evidence. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of speculation there, and I think the only speculation that can be grounds for factual interpretation of a conspiracy was left with the Warren Commission, where it left open some of those areas. And then you had the 1978 House Select Committee on uh, Assassinations, I think it was. I'm not sure. I could be totally wrong here. But they actually did put out that it was a conspiracy. And you know what? You could call the Oswald thing a conspiracy between him and his wife or the guy who bought the gun. But Oswald had a very good day in Dealey Plaza. And yes, you're right. Don't know why he did not shoot Kennedy in the face while he was coming down Elm and before he turned onto Oak or whatever the hell that road was in front of the school book depository. And he took a first shot, missed because Kennedy was behind the tree. And he took a second shot, hit Kennedy behind the neck, went through, hit Governor Connolly. There was no magic bullet. It was because of the jump seats. The bullet went straight through, hit Connolly, everything. Like, Straight right. trajectory. Second, this, the third and final shot was it hit Kennedy right here, blew this side of his head out, and exited out of the other side of his head, the front of his head, to not get too graphic, and blew yeah. out the side and basically half of Kennedy's brain. So that's what happened. Exactly. There's nothing more to add to that. And wow, we are in a society now where conspiracy theories, it's like, what if, what if, and that's facts. What if is in facts. Facts are facts. Facts are hard data that happen. Bullet trajectory, things that happen. Times where Kennedy was hit, times where bullets ejected, things like that. That's what you have to focus on. And it, and it pushes on to all this crap with Trump, with QAnon conspiracies and all this stuff. Ugh. It's not the what if crap. You need to have hard facts that nail this shit down. And right. nobody has that. So. No, they don't. And, and you're absolutely right. Couldn't have said it better myself. And if that happened to somebody not famous or non-political, the, the police report would just, it would be an arrest. Here's what happened. The trajectory report shows this. That's it. But because it's, you, you always have nut jobs. You're like, what if, what if, what if Stanley Kubrick di- di- directed the space launch and the, the, the moon landing? Okay. All right. Yeah, it's frustrating. Good luck with your life, you know. But did you did you see this uh, Britney Spears uh, documentary? (laughs) There's wait the Britney Spears documentary. I don't know. It's the one that's like I haven't seen it, but I've heard I've heard chatter about it. Uh, Uh, I've heard I saw there was something on her, but I didn't read it. Her dad's controlling her. Yeah, basically, and like now they're going after people that like. ripped her up, you know, when she was going through a bad time, which, you know, it was a bad thing. Like Diane Sawyer yeah. can like run through the car wash right now. But Wait, maybe she that? should. You know, maybe she should. <laughs> I'm Diane Sawyer. I always do interviews through the plate glass of uh you know. <laughs> I'm Diane Sawyer. Do but, people, still, know, do people yeah. still care about Britney Spears and the conspiracy is that like a the thing now? Because I've I've read that people think she's like held captive by her dad and he's controlling everything. Is that like a real thing today? I think it is. Interesting. Because she's still relevant, right? People still like Britney Spears? You gotta look at her like, you know, 
she was one of like the the biggest pop singers, you know, back in the early two thousands. So there she is. And I don't know what's going on with her and her dad. I don't know. I don't know what to believe. I honestly haven't even dug into it like an inch. So I don't know. Right. You have bigger. I was actually hoping like I was throwing, I was throwing a grenade over to you, Clark, and like hoping you would catch it and like, (laughs) and I I did hear that people are outraged because the court did recently rule in her dad's favor to um, be in control of the conservatorship of, of her broader fat finances so that she can't just like blow her money or something like that. But I don't know how that works because she's our age. She's, She's she's in her late thirties, and I would think she's like gotten through everything. Like I could see maybe yeah. like in her when she was going through a crisis area where she maybe had an addiction or whatever was going on. I don't know. Sure, I'm yeah. not. A yeah, yeah. When you're twenty, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. When you're twenty three and you have like a hundred and fifty million dollars and you're spiraling out of control, maybe the dad can come in and like get you. But if you're almost forty, like that's your money. Like fuck off, dad. There we go. No, you said it perfectly. I don't need to say it. 